Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Mary Ellen Iskandarian. She is the president and CEO of the global nonprofit organization called Women's World Banking. Mary Ellen is a champion of women's economic empowerment, opportunity, and inclusion. She has a new book called There's Nothing Micro About a Billion Women, Making Finance Work for Women. And the book talks about the making of the global banking system, making the banking, the global banking system work for all women, especially in developing economies in which women play such an integral part. Thank you for joining us today, Mary Ellen. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. Well, great. Why did you write this book? Well, I've been working on these issues now in one shape or form for for more years than I really care to admit to. But I really, to some degree, I wrote it for myself and really wanting to take all that I'd learned, all the women I'd met, all the wonderful financial institutions I'd had the opportunity to work with and just bring them all together between two covers make sure I had all the latest research that was, you know, backing up my um, my hypotheses. But I really was building it for an audience to make the point that bringing women into the formal financial system is is fantastic for them and very empowering for them. It's also an enormous driver of economic growth and a really good proposition for financial service providers around the world. So what do you want readers to take away from this book? I think it would really be that that last point that, you know, these are not charity cases, even though some of the women that we're talking about are are literally living on the proverbial two dollars a day. Their financial transactions may individually be very small, but they are not charity cases. They are looking for high quality, convenient, low cost financial services. And digital technology now has made that within our reach. These are customers that can be served and should be served. You know, one of the things I liked about this book, again, the titles, there's nothing micro about a billion women making finance work for women. One of the things that I liked about the book was it kind of walked through the evolution of microfinance. I think 40 years ago, I would have argued, and I think many people would have argued who were the original innovators of microfinance, that it was a charity function or sort of a charity function or sort of a social enterprise. But I think the thinking's evolved over time. Could you walk us through a little bit of how the, in essence, moving from microfinance to finance or access to finance? I mean, I think there's been a there's been an evolution in thinking over time. And so why don't you why don't you walk us through that? Because I think that's been that's also kind of your tr- career has sort of been a trajectory is kind of tracked a lot of that. Exactly, exactly. No, we've 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 learned a lot and and frankly the technology has allowed the industry to evolve as, as well. So, we you know we think of, you know, Muhammad Yunus, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Ila Bhatt, founder of Sewa Bank, some of these 
fincas and axions in Latin America, some of these iconic microfinance institutions really grew out of this this belief that I think was indeed proven that the poor could be banked, that a relatively small loan that allowed a farmer or a business person to grow a business or start a business was, you know, very, very well, very valued and had fantastic repayment rates. And what we started to see very quickly in as more and more of these microfinance institutions sprang up across the developing world, we saw a you know, real overwhelming majority of clients being women and again, seeing really terrific repayment rates. Now, you also saw very, very high interest rates because very small loans that had a very high touch component, personal interaction with a loan officer, that's expensive. And yet you were still seeing the repayment rates being being quite high. But over time, there really started to emerge some concerns about, you know, were you over indebting? Were you, you know, you started to see in some villages and some countries, you know, people taking out two or three loans with interest rates 30 to 40 percent. So you really were starting to see concerns about indebtedness when and this is still very much the case when you talk to women about what they're looking for with financial services, almost more than credit, they're really looking for a safe place to save. And so you started to see both from the institution's part, a desire to become deposit taking institutions. That was a de- desire and a demand on the part of their clients. But you also saw regulators being you know, concerned that so vibrant a part of the financial system was taking place in microfinance institutions, in unregulated institutions. So starting in the, I guess, the 90s, early, early aughts, you started to see this big push for microfinance institutions to become regulated and taking in external capital in order to do that. Now, a couple of things happened. Yes, it enabled them to be, to start taking savings deposits and offering a broader range of services. But you also saw loan size going up because you had the cost of being a regulated institution moving away from women because very often the smaller loans were to women. So you really started to see the fundamentals of the business shift pretty strongly with the shift in capital. And then right about that same time as this whole model is is shifting and a lot of the dynamics that had worked so well for the nonprofit version of microfinance, you have the explosion of mobile money and digital transactions performed on a cell phone, which dramatically brought down the cost of those transactions and brought a whole range of new players onto the field who could become providers of financial services to this low-income population. Cell phones were far more ubiquitous than bank accounts, much, much faster in the lives of poor people. But with all this going on, we unfortunately saw the microfinance industry much too slow to adopt the cellular technology. They didn't really recognize the opportunity. And, And unfortunately, many of them have not digitized operations to that extent. And so you've frankly allowed a whole range of 
cell phone companies, some of the mainstream banks, fast-moving consumer goods providers, and now more recently, fintechs really start to move into that space, which is great that more poor people have more options, but it's really, I think, become more of an existential threat almost to the traditional microfinance institutions. And so when COVID happened, you really saw this enormous rush to digitization and a lot of the microfinance institutions as a result have been in in pretty rough shape. You're seeing, you know, a lot of the developing world put payment moratoria on loans in that first year of, of COVID. Many of those organizations were not able to shift to digital fast enough to meet their clients where they were, you know, locked up in their homes as opposed to being able to visit them in person, dealing in cash. And you also saw their solvency ratios really start to get hit hard as those non-paid loans, you know, started to age in the in their portfolios. So I'd say it's a really important existential moment right now for traditional microfinance, but at the same time, a really exciting and blossoming time for the provision of financial services to low-income people. So how does Women's World Banking fit into this conversation. Tell us about Women's World Banking. Tell us about its evolution and how does it fit into the conversation we were just having? Oh, that would be a great pleasure. That's my day job. (laughs) So Women's World Banking is, I think this year we will be 43 years old. And I always like, I like to talk about, you know, when the organization was conceived and then when it was really born, it was conceived at the first UN conference on human rights for women which was held in Mexico City in 1976. And a group of women came together there recognizing that you couldn't really talk about the full realization of human rights for women if they also didn't have economic rights. And you have to remember in 1976, in many states in the United States, a woman can get a loan or a credit card without her husband's signature. We were still at a very, very earlier, a much earlier stage in terms of independent, autonomous economic rights for women. So a group of women from both the U.S. and some developing countries came together, created this organization that would really work to support full access to financial resources to women. And we weren't necessarily focused on low-income women in 1979. That organization sort of ran right into the very new, very exciting microfinance movement that I talked about earlier. And so the mission sort of pivoted fairly quickly to supporting microfinance institutions, providing, you know, capacity building, leadership training as their operations became more sophisticated, things like asset liability management. So a whole range of support to these financial institutions, which, as I said, were largely serving low-income women. And so for many years, the work of the institution was very focused on supporting those sometimes very iconic organizations supporting women's economic empowerment. And then that that um, mobile money explosion that I referred to came just about the same time that I joined the organization in 2006. And the partners that we started working with were all of those that I listed before. So we were seeing more work with mainstream banks and insurance companies, doing a lot of fascinating work with fast-moving consumer goods companies, this new entity of, of fintechs, cell phone companies. And so 
we became much more focused on anybody who had a line of sight into that low-income woman's life. We saw them as a you know viable option to delivering financial services. And then the one other thing that I'd start, I'd say that has been a, a newer development in women's world banking is recognizing that they're that that influx of capital that I referred to as more microfinance institutions took on external investors moving away from women both as clients and frankly as leaders. And that was just so contrary to our mission that we decided that we needed to become an investor so that that continued support of women as clients and as leaders could take place. And so we raised our first impact investment fund $50 million that we invested in 10 microfinance institutions and other sorts of providers to low-income women. We just a week ago today closed our second impact investment fund, $100 million, 103 to be exact. We've made um, five investments to date, really exciting companies. We've invested in a, a wonderful low-income housing company in India, for example, that requires that the woman's name be on the title to the property that they're funding. So she immediately becomes an owner of that asset, huge driver of economic empowerment. So right now we're we're still very supportive of financial institutions in our advisory work. We're working increasingly with regulators to help them reach their financial inclusion goals and their national financial inclusion strategies. But we're also an, an investor working with individual institutions. It's really fascinating. It's really fantastic. If I said the word fintech, what exactly is fintech? You used the term earlier. Tell us about fintech and how does that fit in this discussion? It's a little bit of a one of those uh, portmanteau words, you know, financial technology has been, you know, collapsed into fintech, but it's in its simplest form, it's really taking advantage of the explosion of digital technology, largely cell phone technology available, you know, internet enabled cell phones. So that's a very important distinction. There is still unfortunate, a real, unfortunately, a real gender gap in the ownership of smartphones or phones that have access to the internet. So while flip phones are fabulous, the real opportunity for taking advantage of and having access to financial services is really based um, through the cell phone. But you're seeing a whole range of business models from, you know, small consumer loans to loans made to small and medium sized enterprises based on, you know, uh, credit scores that are related to data that come off of your, your cell phone. So the majority of, say, credit bureaus or credit rating agencies around the world only support about 5% of the population in those countries. The data about women's creditworthiness, women's capacity to repay a loan, isn't really collected by any of those formal sources, but their behavior on the cell phone, their payment of their their cell phone bill, their electricity bill, the kinds of models that you can now develop through scraping this data has created a, a whole opportunity for women to have access to finance that was just never never available to them before. You referenced the cell phones and the tele, the payment technologies. Go a little deeper, if you could, about how that has kind of shifted the discussion. Because when I was at AID, 
15 years ago, the, the big thing was, oh, we're going to help Axion give folks credit cards. Well, that that, you know, that quickly is not really a thing. Any a physical credit card isn't that really important. It's, you know, there was a thing called M-Pesa. There's a thing, you know what M-Pesa is. It, you know, there's been a series of sort of disruptions in the, in the model, the, you know, then you talked about that earlier, but talk a little bit more about cell, cell phone, you know, you talked about smartphones, but it seems to me there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes in it just in addition to having a smartphone, if you will. Okay, so maybe let's let's talk about M-Pesa, which was the first, really the, the first digital financial technology. They are now, I think, coming up on 12 or 13 years. And they initially were really just about, about payments, making via this, from cell phone to cell phone, the ability to make a payment to your grandma living in, a, in the village and you're, um, you know, you're working in, in the city. And it really just caught this this idea of being able to make payments via the cell phone really just caught fire and really spread across Africa and now to most of the developing world. South Asia is quickly uh, catching up with, with Africa in terms of the penetration of that market. But what's been seen as, as being particularly important to women is that the ability to save on the cell phone. So super convenient. It's literally in, in your hand. You usually have to work through an agent that is often nothing more than a, a little kiosk in your village where you are going to go anywhere anyway to top up your phone. That's the amount of time that you, that when you're buying airtime, but you can make payments through this agent so that the convenience, the confidentiality, it's your phone, the information is on your SIM card. Others in the village and your family don't necessarily need to know what you're paying for or that you are making a payment has turned out to have really important poverty reducing um, impacts. There was some great research done on M-Pesa that showed two things, that women were much more likely to be in the formal financial sector the more convenient these locations were to him to them so they were really the you know, women are are much more time starved than men tend to be the ability to to transact conveniently made a tremendous difference and then that in turn led to a really truly remarkable raising of households over the poverty line. They were able to move away from, say, subsistence agriculture into more entrepreneurial or retail-related related businesses. And you saw the greatest improvement in their well-being and their family's well-being if the household was a, a female-headed household. So that access to services really basically to juggle, it didn't necessarily have to be credit per se, but the ability to to save, to pay, to, to borrow when needed, the ability to juggle financial tools made an enormous difference in women's lives and the convenience of the phone really allowed them, you know, full access. One of the questions I had when I was reading the book is what percentage of the world's women have access to finance, if that's the right way to ask the question? 
good that you're you're making that distinction because financial inclusion is a, a a bit of a clunky definition in the sense that it is very purely recognized as whether you own a bank account in your own name and there are 65% of the world's women have an account in their own own name compared with 72% of the world's men but when you think about just having a bank account versus the usage of that account versus the uh, other services that would allow you to take advantage of a good opportunity or to buy, uh, make a bulk purchase, or, you know, what we see is so important to low-income families who've been able to maybe just make those first hesitant moves out of out of poverty is the ability to insure themselves against a health emergency. That's the quickest way for a poor family to fall back into poverty is a an illness, particularly on the part of the, the main breadwinner in the family. So it's really not just having the account, but having access to the services, payments, savings, credit and insurance that allows you to engage all of those tools. You know, we often talk about, you know, financial inclusion not being an end in itself, but a way that people can take control of their own lives and bring about other changes in their lives. But it really, and increasingly for women, is that that necessary condition to make those other changes in their lives. So, so Mary Ellen, you, I love the book. There's nothing micro about a billion women making finance work for women. One of the, your last chapter is a call to action. It strikes me as if, you know, we've just, it strikes me as there's still some, we've still got some work to do. Talk about what the work is we still got to do and what are some of the steps you'd like to see happen So I tried to target the call to action to as many different audiences as possible. So sure, policymakers have a huge role to play here. And it's very exciting that so many countries now have actually set themselves national financial inclusion strategies. We've seen that there's a very strong correlation between inclusive financial systems and more equal growth. At reducing inequality. There's also a strong correlation between gender equality and equality of growth. So good growth is um, an objective, particularly post-COVID for so many economies and building in financial inclusion is a way to get there. But so many of the strategies, frankly, didn't think about how you might need to reach women differently. And so I have encouraged in the call to action for governments to think more specifically about the ways that they can reach women. One of the most exciting things about COVID, it's really financial inclusion is one of the few silver linings in in COVID. We've seen literally millions of women have come into the financial system as COVID relief payments were made available through digital government to person payments. India, for example, made its first round of COVID relief payments only payable to women. You saw within literally a matter of weeks, 25 million new bank accounts opened primarily by women in order to take those accounts. And they were digital accounts. So again, through the cell phone. I also call out actions that individual financial service providers can take. We see 
in so many cases that Women's World Banking has worked in, if you design a product, you know, if the default product is typically a product that men will gravitate towards. Whereas there are a couple of things that women really need to see in a product. They need the language, the the reference to other women or to it being for women is very important for the women client. And yet we see men don't really particularly care so much about the language. Some of the things that we've done um, where we've simplified documentation, we've simplified the things that women have to qualify for in order to get a loan, get rave reviews by the men clients. So it's really a question of if you're designing for women, you're probably designing for everybody. I also think there's an awful lot that you and I as consumers of financial services can do. Look at whether whether your insurance company, your asset manager, do they have women in their staff? Again, very strong correlation between more women in managerial and uh, governance roles in financial institutions tend to lead to more women being served. So, you know, check out what the management structure is and whether they're good gender diverse gender diverse teams. There's a real perception by many women that they are less financially literate than men. So if that's the case, get smart, get financially literate, ask questions. Um, Fidelity did some really fascinating work on women's perception about their financial literacy versus the fact that they just ask more questions and it takes them a little bit longer to get to a decision. They're not less literate. It just takes a little bit longer. And so I think financial institutions that genuinely want to serve women just need to pay attention to what what they need, what they want. And there's a very lucrative, untapped market for them there. This is great, Marilyn. I'm so happy uh, to have you today to talk about there's nothing micro about a billion women making finance work for women. If you've got any sort of parting thoughts for us, I'd welcome that in terms of of what what folks should take away from this conversation. I think I would just summarize again this idea that when we talk about providing services to, terrible phrase, but the unbanked, it it really does always seem to have this charitable connotation. But there's really a huge opportunity for not just micro growth, but macroeconomic growth. There's a business opportunity, billions of dollars in additional retail banking revenue alone, something like $50 billion in life insurance premia that insurance companies could earn annually if they were writing life insurance at the same levels for men as for women. And there's a tremendous empowerment opportunity for women, they tend to vote more when they have financial resources. They are more optimistic about their futures. They have more of a say in their household in household decisions. And they spend their money on things that will have long-term intergenerational impacts. Women around the world, when they have money under their own control, spend it on their kids' education, their family's health, and improving their houses. And how, how could that possibly be a bad thing to have more of? It's great. Mary Ellen, this is great. I really uh, have enjoyed our conversation today. This is great. Again, there's nothing micro about a billion women by Mary Ellen Iskandarian. When is the book coming out, Mary Ellen? It'll be out on April 19th. You can pre-order now, uh, but it'll be out on the 19th of April. Great. Great. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 